we acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Noongar people, on whose country we conduct our meditation and our ceremonies tonight. Uh, tonight uh, we celebrate um, Bodhi Day, Enlightenment uh, Day, night. And um, traditionally in many cultures tea and cake are served, so we thought it would be really neat to have tea and cake uh, tonight. Um, it also symbolises the, the, the point when the, the, the Buddha was um, mid-course, I guess, on his journey to enlightenment. And uh, uh, he decided that, that he must in order to survive at all. Um, eat. And was served uh, milk and rice by Sujata, a village girl. Uh, near Magadha, and uh, that enabled him uh, to recover, restore his health, and uh, and begin the 49 days of sitting, uh, the 49 days and nights of sitting that led to his enlightenment. So tea and cake is kind of significant here tonight, and thanks to everyone who uh, got this together uh, for us. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the, the story of the Buddha's uh, enlightenment. Uh, we are a little ahead of the beat here um, in Australia because uh, Bodhi uh, night is not until the 7th, December the 7th, going into the dawn of December the 8th. But the Dharma is always a bit ahead of the beat, uh, south of the equator, so we're doing it early uh, here. Uh, we don't so much seek uh, literal historical truth, although some of this uh, is historical, uh, but we seek the great archetypal themes that guide our practice and inspire uh, our lives. We can plug into the story of the Buddha's enlightenment in many ways at many different levels. Uh, finally, the way is experiential. Uh, it's not about clinging to literal historical truths uh, uh, or in even in being intuitive, as in, you know, I can intuit what she's thinking or I know what she would be doing right now or anything like that. Um, big stories like this engage the deepest parts of our souls, um, which are in their way the depths of the universe as well. So here's the foundation story itself, and I've, I've uh, introduced uh, um, a little talk, the, the Buddha and His Dharma by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and uh, weaving together Theravadan uh, accounts of the story and Zen accounts of the story. It feels like both of these traditions are immensely important here. Um, so I've woven the two uh, somewhat together here. Once upon a time, or two and a half thousand years ago, uh, or if we're going to be very literal, 566 or 563 uh, years before the Christian era, uh, Prince Siddhartha was born into the noble family of the Shakya clan at Kapalavastu, far away in the north of India. It was foretold 
uh, that he would be a great ruler or a great spiritual teacher. His father, perhaps somewhat obviously, decided uh, that he would be uh, a great ruler and undoubtedly his father's successor. As a royal youth, Prince Siddhartha was raised in luxury. His father had built for him three palaces, one for each season of the year. So there was three seasons in the year uh, there. And he enjoyed himself in the company of his friends. At the age of 16, he married his cousin, the beautiful princess named uh, Yasodhara, and they lived a contented life in the Shakyan capital, Kapilevastu. During this time, he was probably trained in the martial arts and the skills of statecraft. It seemed that the genie that could grant an infinity of wishes was at his command. Uh, but Hedonism, like asceticism, can be a tough path. And I can't find the story, but there is a story of a Japanese monk who decided that hedonism was the way. And uh, so, um, lots of sex, lots of drugs. Um, but he, he and his followers found this just as difficult as a asceticism, perhaps more so. Um, so, it, it, yeah, either way, it's probably tough. The boredom of excess, the distractions of power, um, even the onerous responsibilities uh, that may go with that. However, when Siddhartha reached his late twenties, uh, he became increasingly introspective. What troubled him were the questions concerning the purpose and meaning of life. Is the purpose of our existence the enjoyment of sensual pleasures, the achievement of wealth and status, the exercise of power, or is there something beyond these, more real and more fulfilling? These were the questions that came to obsess him. It's great uh, here in, in Australia to hear programs uh, on the Philosopher's Zone that deal with questions these days like the meaning of life and metaphysics and all of that is alive uh, and well, at least on the ABC. Um, and uh, I, I love driving at night listening to these programs and uh, sometimes find myself in remote suburbs um, where I don't know the streets. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderful experience and notions like uh, meaning of life uh, in the sense of the taken in the sense of imminent meaning the meaning of your life taken from the inside of your life um, and the larger one about transcendental meaning and purpose of life uh, there are still things that can be said and these remain deep questions I think for human beings as it was for Siddhartha So finally, um, I think taken out by the uh, charioteer, he gets out of the palace. This is bound to happen in the story. Um, and he's been, in a way, walled up by his father protect, to protect him from the raw realities of the world and our life in it. And we do a good job of protecting ourselves from a lot of reality too. Um, suburban dwellings and I remember travelling with Julian in, in Sydney and coming across these suburbs where 
Uh, every house is walled, uh, every house you have to ring a bell and people can decide whether they respond to you or not, uh, and, and so on. But uh, yeah, in a way we are able to seal off quite a lot of that as well. But he does manage to get out and on his uh, surreptitious to the world, visits to the world outside, uh, he encounters an old person, a sick person, uh, and a corpse. Uh, it is as though his father had been raising him to become a god rather than uh, a prince, uh, in a way, a complete protection from the realities of uh, mortal life. It's really like a, a sort of an early run for immortal life. But could he have been so protected as to be so ignorant? before. And insight into death can start early. Um, my daughter Amanda told me recently that her Auntie Margaret, uh, who was um, my former wife Glenys's sister-in-law, had died of lung cancer uh, down in Albany. and uh, uh, Her death occurred at 3am and the undertaker came and they put her in the coffin so that Daryl, her husband, could sit with her through the night. At sunup they came and collected the coffin and put the coffin in the vehicle to take her to the undertakers. And my three-year-old granddaughter Charlotte, um, commenting on this, said, in the morning the sun came up and she left the house and she felt much better. So at three, there is a kind of insight uh, there. It's very poignant for me to hear that story. We're collecting the stories of Charlotte, like everyone would write the stories down. So Shakyamuni, uh, after encountering the sick, per the old person, the sick person, the dead person, he encounters a monk. Uh, four signs, and from these signs. Um, uh, he intuits, he knows, he knows beyond doubt what he must do. It's amazing how our life collects around these moments. Um, there's an expression in French, point de repair, where everything gathers uh, significance in a particular moment. And what happens in literature, uh, it's... Henry James said that seeing a woman coming down the stairs and pausing on one of the steps and the light coming through the window gave him the whole character of Isabel Archer for portrait of a lady. Um, you know, everything was there uh, just in that, that moment, in that lit uh, moment. Yeah, I think if we reflect on our lives, say, we all have such important uh, gathering moments. These experiences crystallise from a Zen perspective into a Khan. And Shakyamuni's Khan was, uh, why do we suffer? Uh, is there liberation from suffering? Uh, what is that liberation from suffering? It's kind of useful to think of suffering uh, in terms of necessary uh, and unnecessary 
necessary suffering, I think, is a lot of physical pain, which just goes with being human and being alive and subject to illness uh, and injury. Meditation can help with bearing that uh, and even give release, but it's not a panacea for all of physical pain. How could it be? Then there are the pains of ageing, uh, of old age. Uh, de Gaulle said, old age is a shipwreck. I don't want to over-dramatise it, but I can, I can attest to little bits of the shipwreck in the mornings here and there. And of course we experience emotional suffering in measure. Uh, none of us escapes uh, that. Uh, for me the worst suffering uh, would be to have my children or grandchildren predecease me. Something which is alive at the moment with my partner, Antoinette's uh, son and daughter-in-law, a uh, little baby died. Um, was a miscarriage and tomorrow we have the ceremony at King Edward Memorial Hospital so this is very alive and it's very painful time as we age we're more aware of illness and uh, we're more in touch uh, hopefully uh, with the death of those uh, around us older we get uh, more death uh, appears and there is that sense of losing the sense of who we are uh, the long goodbye of Alzheimer's disease unnecessary suffering there's lots and lots of that I think for all of us um, sweating the small and we're all vulnerable to this I mean, one of the great questions of life is, why do I hurt so much over so little? Um, you know, this is a question, you know, sometimes very large things happen and they fail to engage our hearts, but the small stuff so often does. Uh, the pain of insult, uh, the pain of shame, uh, the fear of shame, the pain of feeling undervalued, uh, the pangs of envy, um, the pain of coming out second best, the pain of making a fool of oneself, and it rolls on uh, and on. My old uh, accordion teacher, Harry Black, who has um, spent a lot of his life arranging um, music for huge big bands, 18-piece big bands, and in those days there was no computer to just spit out the parts at the end of the, you know, your huge arrangement of tenderly or don't get around much anymore or whatever the swing tunes of the day were. So he would sit up all night uh, drinking Turkish coffee in Bon Marche buildings where his studio's studio was and then, then he'd have to copy out all the parts as well. So for 18 piece big band, that's a lot of writing. Uh, I've seen the sheafs, each of these is a sheaf like this just for a single tune, uh, like I'm beginning to see the light and one of those tunes. I remember this because I had to sort them when I used to work there. 
But he would rock up to the television studio with all of the parts and they'd be given out to the players and the players would be sitting there and uh, putting the music on their stands and then you'd hear from the back this rumbling, you know, who wrote this crap? <laughs> Audible enough for him to be able to hear because he'd be down the front ready to conduct them. And uh, he said, you know, like, on the interview which I listened to, he said, you know, it, it really hurt. Uh, he said, but, you know... It gave them a job. You know, they got paid for playing it, so they got a gig out of it. Um, and he was always able to ride over this kind of thing. So he would be, he would say, "You can't insult me. I've been insulted by experts." You know, <laughs> but uh, we have our own ways of dealing. Uh, you know, with um, the sweating of the small stuff. You know, allowing. Uh, the pain to be what it is, opening to simply what is, um, is both helpful and it keeps it real and it keeps it grounded. And uh, sometimes the stories drain off from that and there is just the pain. Um, there is also, with all of the pains in the heart and disappointments, uh, there is also something larger rolling as you experience that at any point. Um, so you can hold it in the larger field of your awareness. And uh, sometimes it shifts. Uh, um, and I think that expression which we use, um, taking responsibility for it, you know, not blaming... When something large is rolling, it doesn't mean the bad behaviour of your friends. Okay, or the people who have treated you badly. It's not about that. But actually taking personal responsibility is actually quite helpful uh, as well. And all of these in some measure bring uh, a measure of release. So Shakyamuni's question is, was, why do we suffer? Is there liberation from suffering? And uh, his response, he leaves his wife, Yasadara, and his child, uh, on, literally on the morning that his son is born, Rahula, and he's 29 years old at the time. Um, I'll hold on, you know, he, he turned down uh, a huge spiritual path for one that he had no notion of even what it was uh, at that point. It's huge, it's archetypal, it reflects the culture of his time, of home leaving, uh, but he also leaves behind a heap of grief. In some ways, he did uh, what he had to do, as I think a lot of other uh, people who've embarked similarly on this kind of path did. Uh, so he enters the young man's heroic question. This is a hero story. Starts with the study of the philosophies and meditation systems of his day. Heads south for Magadha, 
which is present-day Bihar, in whose environs small groups of seekers were quietly pursuing their quest for spiritual illumination, usually under the guidance of a guru. At the time, northern India could boast of a number of accomplished masters famous for their philosophical systems and achievements in meditation. From them he learned systems of meditation, which, from the descriptions in the text, seem to have been forerunners of Raja Yoga. Uh, Prince Siddhartha mastered their teachings and systems of meditation, but though he reached exalted levels of concentration, samadhi, he found these teachings were insufficient, for they did not lead to the goal he was seeking, a perfect enlightenment, the realisation of nirvana. Uh, released from the sufferings of sentient existence. This is stage one, really. I mean, the story, the story itself also describes steps on the way, which in our own way um, we take or we can take. Um, this is an archetypal account of the, the mastery of techniques. Uh, the ability to still the mind, to settle the mind, to experience peace, to experience depth, uh, and to even get an overview of the nature of the path. Um, uh, reading in the early stages and throughout is important. Um, it's important to know uh, what you are in, and hopefully it doesn't preempt genuine uh, experience. Stage two of the way, okay, we enter the second stage and it veers from one extreme uh, to the other. Now, all this is a little bit like the Hegelian's, um, what is it now, uh, <coughs> thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis as the, the middle way, which you arrives at. So uh, that was thesis, okay, here's antithesis. So he spent six years with the ascetics and their austerities, uh, starving himself, uh, going without sleep, uh, going without shelter, so being out in rain, wind, cold, uh, heat. Um, you know, when we start to do Zazen, it doesn't, for, I don't know of anyone who, for whom this is true, but there is a, a simplification that happens quite naturally. Um, if you sit devotedly, there's a feeling that you need maybe a little bit less um, material uh, comfort, uh, maybe a little less luxury, maybe a little less TV. Um, so, and this happens quite naturally with, with sitting. Um, but this is very extreme. Uh, he almost dies. Um, And he realises that he can't go on. So he begins to seek uh, a middle uh, path. The middle way in this kind of context is like getting our lives in tune, like getting a guitar into tune. Uh, 
in the broader sense of the middle way as it develops uh, from his teaching, uh, it's expressed as more as if you raise the matter of time, the matter of timelessness appears. Uh, if you raise the matter of trying to think of the right expression here um, if you raise the matter of right then wrong necessarily appears um, if you talk about the self uh, the universe uh, appears so it's that matter of um, things don't occur in isolation uh, self is not in isolation uh, from the world and this is the account that he went on to develop. Um, Dogen's account in the middle way, he says, it's leaping clear of the one and the many. Okay, on the one hand, um, each thing and everything is completely void of self-nature. This is the one, so-called. The many is uh, each of us individually, uh, taken individually. Uh, Pedro, Lizzie, Kevin, the candles, the flower. So on the one hand you have vastness and boundlessness. On the other hand you have... Uh, uh, what is bright, what is unique, what is unrepeatable. And uh, the, the middle way is actually not some average between those, as we so often express the middle way, but actually radically going beyond, stepping beyond those two accounts of reality. So he says, leaping clear of the one and many, Okay, so I just this is a little disquisition on the middle way, but in terms of the middle way here, uh, the Buddha realised that he would have to regain his strength. Thus he gave up his practice of austerities and resumed taking nutritious food. The story goes that a girl from the village, Sujata was her name, discovering him at the point of death, gave him milk and rice to revive him and continued doing this until his strength returned. At that time, the five other ascetics he'd been living in, live and who attended on him, hoping that he had, would attain an enlightenment uh, and would serve as their guide when they saw him partake of substantial meals like milk and rice, uh, they became disgusted with him and left him, thinking the princely ascetic had given up his exertions and reverted to a life of luxury. However... Thus restored and solitary, he undertook to awaken and to find liberation. He got support from the village kids. Sujata was one of them who continued to feed him, and Svasti, the buffalo boy, who brought him fresh kusa grass to sit on. Um, this is an oil, early form of the zafu. This is a bundle of grass that you can uh, sit on. 
Shakyamuni vowed not to rise until he had awakened. 49 days and nights of hard sitting, during which he experienced the temptations of Mara, uh, sexual enticements, the enticements of great power. Um, this must surely have been old stuff to him, uh, but we're all vulnerable in our way to that. Uh, I love this in response uh, to all of these uh, blandishments, uh, flatteries, temptations. He just uh, touched earth. Uh, indivisible. Uh, not able to be moved about. Completely at one. On the final night, as dusk became darkness, uh, he entered into deeper and deeper stages of meditation until his mind was perfectly calm and composed. Then the records tell us, in the first watch of the night, he directed his concentrated mind to the recollection of his previous lives. Gradually there unfolded before his inner vision his experiences in many past births, even during many cosmic eons. In the middle watch of the night, he developed the divine eye by which he could see beings passing away and taking rebirth in accord with their karma and their deeds. Uh, this is a traditional Theravadan account. Um, Zen doesn't uh, pay attention to this um, at all. It's very, very interesting question, I find, because in Shakyamuni Buddhist time and during the Chinese flowering of Zen, that rebirth was completely and absolutely taken for granted. Um, and that uh, although we could awaken in this lifetime, uh, the matter of deeper and deeper awakening would take place over many, many lifetimes. And as the story goes, uh, when you were finally released, when you were finally had finally burnt up all your past karma, you stepped off the wheel of birth and death. Uh, another story, Bodhisattva story, says that you actually delayed stepping off the wheel of birth and death and helped everyone else uh, across. But rebirth is completely implicit. And it's a very interesting question, um, especially here in the West where um, it is certainly not taken for granted um, in Zen, in the Zen tradition, what difference it makes to our practice, uh, what difference it makes to our view of practice. Um, maybe this is a question and a thing for later. In the last watch of the night, he penetrated the deepest truths of existence, the most basic laws of reality, and thereby removed from his mind the subtlest veils of ignorance. And then at dawn, and here we resume, here we take up the Zen account. And then at dawn, Shakyamuni Buddha looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. 
Tathagata is a fancy way of not saying me here. Okay, because something very profound has happened, which makes that perhaps inappropriate. Uh, it means roughly the one thus come. Now I see that all beings are this one. Now I see that all beings are this one. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from seeing it. Now I see that all beings are this one. It's wonderful to the history. This takes a thousand years to develop, this story, this little koan, or big koan, depending on how you look at it. Um, it starts in the earliest scriptures with uh, the morning star appeared. A few hundred years later, uh, Shakyamuni looked up and saw the morning star. A few hundred years later, uh, Shakyamuni looked up and saw the morning star and uh, realised uh, that all beings are the Tathagata. All beings have the virtue uh, of the Tathagata. And then a few hundred years later, this year, now in 1200, so you're in the 13th century, Dahui forms it into, now I see that all beings love the Tathagata. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from seeing it. I forgot to say, Ali, please sit comfortably if you're not already sitting comfortably. So, what did he realise? What did he realise? That's the question here. Uh, for several weeks, the newly awakened Buddha remained in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, uh, contemplating from different angles the Dharma, the truth he had discovered. Then he came to a crossroad. Uh, was he to teach, to share his realisation with others, or would he instead remain quietly in the forest, enjoying the bliss of liberation alone? And, uh, a being, something arose and whispered in his ear, I can't remember the, the story of this, and said, um, look, you should go out. There are some people there who only have uh, uh, a little dust in their eyes. You should go out and teach them, uh, for their sake, uh, at least. And this led to 48 years of walking the back roads of India, uh, teaching, uh, uh, taking on the full burden of teaching whoever came before him and teaching according to their needs. This is a good test of your realisation. So what do, we, what do we take from this story? Um, stickability, determination, devotion to the way. I mean, in here, in terms of the Zen path, um, the way is always personal, but there are also, it is also laid out in some measure. Uh, there are steps uh, that you can take. Uh, there is, uh, at times, a sequence. Uh, but for him, um, <laughs> it's like he began from scratch. 
Yeah, truly, it is huge to do it like that. But it's good to, you know, which, however you are doing it, it's good to keep right on. Uh, it's a regardless kind of way. You know, you, you get lost, you're overwhelmed with thought, but you still come back to your koan. You still come back to the moment. You still come back to your breath. Uh, you do it regardless, regardless, and you get lost again, and you come back, regardless. Uh, it's in that sense, it's unconditional. Whatever modicum of consciousness uh, you have left when you are meditating, especially if you're doing long meditation, uh, you use that uh, modicum. When we listen to the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, it, it's a, enlightenment is a solo business as it comes through there, uh, a hero's journey. Uh, but it needed the necessary support of other people. And I'm moving now from the notion of Buddha enlightenment towards Sangha here. Uh, Yasodhara, his wife, and Rahula, his son, uh, had no say in it in the support that... Did they give support? I think it probably weighed on his heart a lot. It's a wonderful story. He comes back after six years, after his realisation, and he comes back to Kapalivas too. And uh, Yasodhara uh, refuses to see him. She refuses to come to him. Okay. So... Uh, he comes to her. And, uh, it's not recorded what is said, but um, you can read her refusal in many ways, but her grief uh, and the renunciations that she undertook when he was gone, she felt merited him coming to her uh, rather than... Um, she going to him. Hmm. The early, you know, it's easy to reject the early teachers and the ascetics, but each they also played a part. Uh, the growth uh, on the way is like the growth rings on an old tree. Uh, the earlier ones uh, don't fall off, right? They're in there as well. The, the village kids uh, helped out and according to Thich Nhat Hanh, he gave instruction, you know, told them stories of the way uh, were important. And of course finally the morning star uh, kicking in. Uh, the universe is always kicking in. Zen teachers are just there to try and give things a nudge along, but you know, if you're there for it, the universe is always kicking in. Right? There is always a breeze, a morning star, a creaking of boards on the floor, candlelight, whatever. Uh, thoroughly and beautifully doing its work. We may sit alone, uh, but we are not alone uh, in practice. Uh, the universe cooperates, and how? 
So we think, you know, when you're given your first koan, it feels like that lonely journey. Um, but in a way, uh, the universe is always beckoning as well. It's not, uh, it, it's not just some lonely journey into nothing. It's, uh, there, is, there is something which also beckons. And something which is already in place, completely in place. Robert Aitken asked a priest, what if it could be proved that Jesus never, had never existed? And the priest said, my faith would be destroyed. And then the priest asked Robert Aitken, if the Buddha hadn't lived, what difference would it make? And Robert Aitken said, well, perhaps not all that much. Uh, there's still this. There's still this. Uh, there's still the amazing sirens, which uh, completely um, <laughs> dispelled my talk before it was given, you know, earlier when you were sitting. Okay. There is always that. And the experience, that fundamental experience uh, of the Buddha is the birthright of us all. It's sometimes said that sitting with the Khan is sitting to have the Buddhist experience. Um, it's kind of true in its way, but the experience is personal uh, as well. Uh, but once you have realised, you know what happened under the Bodhi tree that night. That experience is universal, predates Shakyamuni, and outlasts us. It outlasts Zen in the East, it outlasts Zen in the West, and all the rest. Yet we express our boundless gratitude and our love for his example, his courage, his stickability, his stop at nothing, and his decision not to let that experience remain a private ecstasy on some remote hill out of Magadar. So he says, uh, it's just the, our delusions and attachments that prevent us from seeing this. Um, delusions and delusions, I'm in here, you're out there, uh, separating ourselves from the world, separating ourselves from life, uh, getting marooned on the island of small self. In Mahayana traditions, including Zen, all of this arises from ignorance. I love it that it arises from ignorance because with the ignorance you feel that there is a chance you can do something about ignorance. Um, there are many things, I think, with deep character traits and that one feels that one is stuck for life. But ignorance doesn't feel like that. It feels like you can meditate, you can study, you can do that stuff. You can, uh, you can change it. Uh, it's, it's blissfully optimistic. <laughs> if it's in Theravada, it's craving. Craving is a little more complex. Um, and the, the matter of craving in Zen is quite delicate, I think. Um, 
Zen accepts uh, a lot of that with a fairly open embrace. That if we can resolve our ignorance, well, you know, <laughs> you can have a full life too with that. I'm cutting corners here, but you know what I mean. Also, uh, in the long of it, over the longest time, our delusions and attachments are gathered in uh, and ultimately our weakness and our vulnerability too uh, are all held within the experience of enlightenment. This is the Zen path in the big. Uh, the little one is the, the awakening, the momentary uh, awakening. Uh, this is like the first date, the, the, the marriage of the way, the big stuff is, uh, you know, includes everything finally uh, in its embrace. Uh, you know, our most shameful parts, our weak parts, uh, all of that is held within the field uh, of vastness. All of that is lit by the moon. To an extent, personal issues, uh, along with thinking about them, are set aside at the beginning of practice. Uh, if you are too caught up there, too caught up in ambivalence about the way and whether you want to take it or whether you deserve it, uh, you never get to embark into it. So it's good to put some stuff aside um, for the sake of getting going. So you count the breath, uh, you let go of your thinking, or rather you come back to one. Um, and then you come back to one, and you get lost and you come back to one. And the, the mind road tends to uh, not rumble so loudly after a while, and you begin to get some clarity and openness. But if you are worried uh, about whether you want to embark into the way or not, whether you deserve it or not, uh, you never get to embark. And this is a bit like being in a little boat stuck on a sandbar and you're getting eaten by the mozzies. Um, it's good to let the rising tide of the Dharma launch you, uh, get your boat off and get you launched. So it's good to take a chance on it. It's good to take a chance on life. It's good to take a chance on the way. There's lots more to this, but I think that is enough. Thank you all. <laughs>